Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we sit down with artist, podcaster, business owner, traveler, guitar strummer, and the creator of Smoker Traeger Recipe, Paul Puckett of the Floodtide Company. Paul and I discussed his early childhood days of fishing ponds in Texas, how he discovered being a guide wasn't for him, the evolution of his career as an artist, his love for Charleston, South Carolina, how he finds inspiration, and the importance of paying your dues. Paul is known for being a fun-loving guy who's a great angler and carries himself with humility, and in this podcast you can see why so many of my previous guests and friends pointed me his way. I love talking with artists because i found that they have ways of finding great insight into life and the outdoors. If you enjoy this podcast, you should also listen to my podcast with Vaughn Cochran and also Chase Hancock, who are also artists in the outdoor community. I know that you guys are going to enjoy our time together. Thank you for the support. This is the Captain's Collective. I don't say it's anything you choose. I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? At? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Paul, thanks for hanging out with us and joining us on the podcast today. I'm looking forward to sitting down and talking about art and travel and Charleston culture with you. But before we dive into all of that, I'd love just to hear about how you got into the outdoors and how eventually it led to where you are today with Flood Tide Company. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's definitely been a long winding road. And when I say winding, I mean, pretty much all good stuff along the way. It's uh, It's one of those things. You know, it, it typically starts with your dad or granddad, and I, I fished with all my granddads and my dad and spent my summers in Tyler, Texas, and did the old everyday fishing with granddad thing, and then one day, you know, catching bass with worms, and then, you know, one day he started waving this this other rod around, which it mm. just kind of myst- mystified me, and I was just, and I was probably 10 years old at the time, and... You know, he told me when I mastered regular bass fishing, you know, with lures and conventional, then one day he would teach me what he's doing. And so that just kind of stuck with me for the next few years. And when he passed away, he never got to show me. So we took my grandmother, I think it was back in 88, took my grandmother up to the Ozark Mountains, which from Dallas, Texas, which is where I'm from. We picked her up in Tyler, and it's probably about an eight-hour drive. It's really not too far up to the White River area, up in... uh, we took her to Branson, Missouri, you know, which is just like a, you know, Disney World for older folks. You got all these <laughs> retired, you know, retired musicians and entertainers that come in there and do all their performances. So we took her there and 
my plan was to learn how to fly fish. And when I say learn how to fly fish, you know, like every other kid that thinks that they can just figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, and I've got a video. I think my dad took a height video of me casting a fly rod for the first time and I could barely get it 10 feet, you know, uh-huh. in front of me without it all piling up. But that's kind of where I got totally infatuated with it. And we went to the, you know, the fur, the Springfield, Missouri Bass Pro Shop. And that was the first time I got to like realize what a fly, because, sh- you know, all those stores, they have a little fly shop in there. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you get the catalog and it's about as thick as a Bible. And I remember just being so amazed by all these furs and feathers and all these things that can make a fly. And then you put it on your fly rod. You can catch a fish with a lure you made yourself. So just was totally into it. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then all through high school was into it. Then I got uh, a job when I graduated high school. A fly shop moved to Dallas called. Uh, West Bank Anglers that was affiliate affiliated with the store out in Jackson, Wyoming. And then, um, my dad found out who taught at the high school that I went to, that one of his ex students was the one opening the store, West Bank Anglers in Dallas. So I got to start working there kind of through that connection and all through college at North Texas is where I went studying art and graphic design. I would work at the fly shops in the summers and the, you know, spring breaks and Christmases and, and then when I finally graduated college, I just decided I was going to go out to Wyoming, Jackson, Wyoming, and work at the West Bank Anglers out there with the idea that I was going to be a guide. Hmm. Now that's, you know, we all, this kind of young romantic idea of what a guide is. And then when you go out there and actually see what it is, that it's actually hard work mentally and physically, I just wasn't cut out for it. And I was working four days a week and having three days a week off where I could, I could actually go fishing for those mm-hmm. three days off and I'm becoming buddies with these guides and they're not able to go fishing. And, uh, so I learned real quick that the fly shop rat lifestyle was perfect for me and, and just kind of stuck with that for four years out there. And, uh, and then I met, met someone that kind of made me move to Atlanta and hmm. that was kind of out of nowhere. And I was kind of had the mindset that I was going to move to Colorado. Mm-hmm. So, I had moving on my mind, and so when the Atlanta thing popped up, I researched the fishing, and I'm like, man, you got trout, striper, mountains north of there. You got saltwater three hours east. So it kind of made sense, and I did it. And then long, you know, still keeping with this long-winded story I'm doing, but uh, so I lived in Atlanta for eight years, worked at the Fishhawk, and then decided there that I wanted to kind of pursue this art thing. So I worked part-time at the Fishhawk, to pursue my art um, aspirations, and it just kind of started blossoming from there. And then I started doing an art show in Charleston called Seawee, Southeastern Wildlife Exposition, hmm. and started falling in love with Charleston, started getting friends here, and then finally things worked out where I could just get up and move, and I did. And I've been here about eight years. And part of your question was flood tide. Um with this fascination that I started having of redfish living in Atlanta, I was going to the Georgia coast a lot pursuing the redfish and I couldn't stop thinking about them. And uh, I was going down there as many of the good tides as I could. And then just, I was starting to do some artwork and designs for other brands such as, uh, did some stuff for Patagonia and a brand called true flies at the time. And Yeti. And I was like, man, why don't I just start my own, uh, shirt company? 
or hat t-shirt, whatever the idea was at the time, and came up with a tailing redfish logo and called it Flood Tide and then moved to Charleston and more or less started it when I moved here to Charleston. Yeah, what in particular about Charleston really drew you there whenever you went and visited? Um, I think just the whole historical uh, feel of it, and it's so unique, and it, it feels like, you know, walking around, it feels like you're walking around, uh, like old Boston or just some of these Northeastern historical cities and towns that I've read about and seen pictures of it. I've never been mm-hmm. to. And, and just the fact that, you know, you can go downtown and, you know, drive four, five more minutes and be at a boat launch and cut, catch a redfish right off the Harbor is just awesome. So, mm-hmm. You can get that city life and everything that a city can provide, but also feel like you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere at the same time. Yeah. So when you were 10 years old and you're at Bass Pro or however old you were, and you first kind of saw all these different feathers and all the workings of fly fishing, I'm sure that kind of struck a chord with you from an artistic standpoint. How has, how have you evolved over the years as an artist and angler? Have you gone through a lot of different phases or has those, those things played off each other? Yeah, you know, growing up, like, my dad and I would build models and, like, create things, and he was a musician as well. So the whole idea of making and creating things was definitely instilled with me at an early age, and my mom was a quilter as well. So I grew up with that whole kind of mindset. Uh, and, and yeah, just the, the thought that you could make, like, these lures and these flies out of just these, you know, objects off animals fur and feathers and and uh just instill with me that i could start combining my love of drawing and creating things within a a sport of fishing just like i I never knew that i could seriously do it but as i've gotten Mm -hmm. older yeah i mean i had the idea that i was going to be a graphic designer that way i could be doing artistic projects and still get paid for them you Mm -hmm. know in in the world of commercial graphic design and and I guess when uh, I was in Atlanta, I just decided to finally start trying my hand at the fine art side of things. And I've gone through a lot of different kind of metamorphoses, I guess is how you'd say it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I still to this day sometimes feel like I try too many things, too many mm-hmm. different left and right turns artistically that, you know, most artists my age by now have clung on to something and mm-hmm. stuck with it but like I'll, like next week I might be trying something totally different like I don't know if I'll ever settle down and stop messing around with different techniques and different subject matters and different ways of doing things cuz I don't know I just maybe it's maybe I've got ADD and don't know it but I can <laughs> never really be satisfied with one certain way of doing something yeah which is probably a detriment <laughs> I, uh, in an interview I did with Von Cochran, he was talking about how he likes to experiment and have a lot of different things going on. And he compared it to like having multiple horses in a horse race and how in his life at different seasons, like one horse will pull out to the front and then in another season, another horse will pull out to the front and he kind of likes mixing mm-hmm. it up and, and changing it. Do you yeah. feel that way? Yeah. You know, it's, it's like once I get excited about something, like whether it's doing these fish portraits on wood, I'm super pumped about doing them. And then, then I'll be like, Oh wait, let's try doing a landscape painting on canvas. Then three weeks later, I'm like, man, I was really digging those 
fish portraits I was doing on wood. Why did I stop doing like, like I don't know. I just get excited about something. It just kind of happens. It's not like I'm bored with uh, doing like a permit, cool permit piece on wood. I'm not bored with that. I just get distracted mm-hmm. and start getting excited about something else. And it's kind of like I'm just bouncing around the room. And uh, I have fun with it. I just sometimes I get frustrated because I'm like, God, why didn't I just just stick to the other thing that <laughs> you were you were doing and doing good at it? And it but you know, I, I guess eventually I'll I'll probably stick to something. But for now, it's kind of fun just trying all these different things. In what ways has your art influenced your angling, or vice versa? Your your angling influenced your art. Obviously, you do a lot of predominantly you know marine art but how have those two things kind of fed off each other yeah that's a good question um i guess the one easy way i can answer that is like two weeks ago i went down to carabelle florida which you and i chatted a little bit during that but uh, i've been down there twice this season but the last time i went just solely to take pictures like it like when you're on a fishing boat for tarpon it's as much of a fun spectator sport as it is actually being on the rod. I think sometimes when someone hooks into a 150 pound tarp and I'm actually more excited that I'm not on the rod. Cause now I can just relax and watch that, that painful grueling thing take place and not have to be a part of it. But, uh, I think as far as my artwork affecting it, sometimes I sit back and watch more mm-hmm. and not, I'm not too worried about, not being the one catching the fish so I can take photos and and kind of take references for either doing sketches later or doing a painting. I guess it slowed my, down my idea of needing to be fishing all the time. Hmm. Um, as long as I'm there soaking it up, that's fine with me. Hmm. Yeah, I'm a aspiring amateur photographer. <laughs> so uh, Okay, yeah. I, I, just, I just started actually recently taking photos this past year. In fact, Greg Dini was really helpful to me when I was getting my gear and kind of learning some of the basics. He would uh, help me out a lot, and I know that you were with Greg some when you were in the yep. panhandle. Um, yep. But yeah, I definitely found like it, it makes me just notice certain things a little bit more. I mean, even like certain things like lighting, you know, and or how how kind of that's changing throughout the day, and there's, you know different mm-hmm. cool things that you can do when the sun is rising with silhouettes. And I feel like I'm just observing more, you know, cause I kind of, I guess I have to put that eye on while I'm doing it. So I definitely agree with that. What, what, what's been the thing that you feel like the, whether it's a trip or a, a certain, I guess, outing that you've had that, that was the biggest spark for you creatively. Is there anything that sticks out any stories or places? Um, yeah, I mean, probably, you know, I, I tend to paint tarp, or I guess I tend to like tarping, painting tarpon scenes and actual tarpon more than probably anything. So when I get back from a tarpon trip, I definitely go straight to drawing tarpon a lot more and trying to plan out uh, some tarpon paintings. And like I do a show down in Thomasville, that plantation wildlife show just north mm-hmm. of you. And, uh, and that's a really hunting heavy show, but at the same time, a lot of those people fish in that panhandle area and fish for tarpon and fish for redfish. So I'll pretty much go there showing up with nothing but tarpon and redfish pieces. So right now I'm, I'm planning some tarpon pieces for that. And there's just nothing like 
painting a tarp and jumping in the water and mm-hmm. uh, all that chaos that kind of goes along with that that gets me excited from a tarpon trip to come do that. And also, um, I'm very lucky enough to go down to Mexico, typically in April, and fish Ascension Bay, which this year it got canceled, and we're going back in August. But when I get back from that trip, um, I'm pretty permit-heavy. Like, I'm wanting to do anything with permit. Now, the only thing with you can usually do with a permit in a painting is usually an underwater scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, if you've ever seen George Martinez's art, he's he's got the permit painting nailed down to a T. Uh, but I, I usually come back wanting to do a few permit pieces from that mm-hmm. trip. Uh, there's It's funny, too, when you go to a place like Panhandle of Florida or Mexico, I come back totally charged up to go fishing here in Charleston, too. Like, it gets you expi- excited and inspired to fish more and, like, learn, learn a little bit more because normally in those as trips you're fishing with guides and they seem to know their fisheries so well. Mm-hmm. And I come back and I come back like, I still haven't figured out Charleston. Like it kind of inspires you to learn more and start looking at things a little differently. Mm-hmm. And so it definitely inspires my artwork and my ability to want to get out and fish more. Yeah. With, with that, I, you know, going to new places and exploring new water and targeting new species and that reflecting into your art, what's been the hardest thing for you to paint or the hardest kind of artistic challenge that you've had? Yeah, probably underwater paintings. Um, like I, I've got, when I first realized that I wanted to do this, it was, I was hugely inspired by an artist named Mark Sassino. And, uh, I would go into the gallery in Dallas, Texas, and just sit there and stare at his paintings. And this is back when probably 89 or 90, maybe when I was like a freshman in high school. And Mm. I just knew that if I wanted to do this, I would have to figure out underwater painting and, and, uh, and still to this day, it's definitely the most challenging thing for me to do without it looking like I just painted a fish over an underwater scene and it's just challenging to paint that fish where it melts into the scene uh, mm-hmm. to make it look like. And you've probably seen good and bad versions of this. When you see, when you see a painting of an underwater scene and the fish just looks like it belongs there, that is just so hard to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's fun. It's challenging. It's exciting. And I've gone through a lot of bad ones to get to a good one. And if I can do anything better going forward, it, it'll always be working on those kind of things, just the underwater painting scene or fishing scene. Yeah. In a similar vein, what, what do you feel like is the biggest risk you've ever taken as, as an artist? Um, yeah, probably funny enough, a month ago when I went to Denver and worked on that big mural for the Trout's Fly Shop there uh, mm-hmm. in Denver, they they had called me and, uh, to do it. And I instantly was just like, no, I don't, I don't do that. Like mm-hmm. it just scared, it just scared me. The whole idea of doing a, a 12 by 24 wall. And you know, that's just not something I've ever really done before. And so I told them no. And then I started thinking, you know, like, you know, it's a good excuse to get to Denver and see some folks that I know out there and, and just take a little break from, the COVID stuff and get out of town. And obviously it would mean I needed to fly, but I was just ready for that. And, uh, definitely doing that mural where I kind of broke it up into four different chunks and did four different fish. And, and it was fun. I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. I did it, did it. I'm not in a hurry to do it again. 
you know, if the timing's right and the subject matter matter is right, then I'll do it, which I've already gotten about three or four requests to do them mm-hmm. again. But well, and you I want just, it to be a hundred degree weather, right? That's what you had told me when we talked during that trip. Uh, that the hotter, the better is what you're looking for as far as painting outdoor murals. Yeah, I mean, not not so much the hot heat, but definitely you don't want it to be humid. You know what I mean? Like uh, as far as the paint drying and getting to work with it, but it it was definitely hot. It was uh, the sun was definitely rocking and rolling right above us, and we were on scaffolding and. I've never painted on scaffolding and, you know, just all these different things that have, have I've never dealt with and, and, uh, acrylic paint. I never really paint with acrylic paint and it was different. It was fun. I'm glad I did it. But like I said, it's not something that I'm waiting to do anytime soon again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it came out great. I thought it was a super, super cool piece over, over your years with traveling and going around and getting to fish different places with different people. What are some trips that really stuck out to you what were some of your favorites oh man i've been super fortunate um to be able to go to quite a few places around the world that 10 years ago i would have never thought i'd ever go so um i've just met some really nice people and really good people that have helped me out with those things and i would have to say the highlight was probably the seychelles trip um a year ago this past march was lucky enough to go to the Seychelles with some really good friends from Texas and you know half the battle was just getting there you know it was like 36 hours of just getting to the main island um, in the Seychelles then you got to take some other little kind of hop along flight trips to get to where you're going then another you know two-hour boat ride and then you're finally there which I actually enjoyed the adventure getting there um but definitely the Seychelles to Cosmo. You're out in the middle of nowhere, and just water is just <laughs> everywhere. I've never, I've never felt that small in my life, mm-hmm. and uh, it was really an amazing place. Great fishery, great guides, and I can't say enough about how awesome it was. Did, did, I would, did you bring art gear with you? I mean, what what type of from an artistic standpoint? What what type of gear do you bring on a trip like that? Yeah, pretty limited. Like I bring my my journal I draw in and and then I brought a small little watercolor set and and I go to those things not really expecting to paint a whole lot with the watercolor stuff. Like a couple nights I broke it out. But, you know, the setting and my way to see my references on an iPad just isn't that good with the lighting and and setting up a little place that you can actually paint. It's just never really realistic and so I always usually end up doing more drawing in journal stuff than I do painting on those kind of trips. Do you have, uh, do you take a camera also? Like, do you mix photography in or how, how does that fit in? I do. I do. I've got kind of like a basic little Canon Rebel um, digital camera. Obviously, I guess there's no need to say digital camera anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember 10 years ago, oh, I've got a digital camera. But uh, no, so I take a, I, I definitely take a camera now. You probably know a lot more what my camera can do than I do, even being a beginning photographer. I honestly put it on automatic, and I just mm-hmm. point and shoot. I don't do any of the trickery. Uh, I just basically need references because the colors and tones and shades don't really matter that much. I just need outlines and details, mm-hmm. and then I can kind of make up the colors. But So, yeah, tons of photos from that trip, and the main painting I've done from that trip, honestly, was for myself, uh, 
a big GT I caught and I painted it life size on a big piece of wood and I transposed the the journal entry that I wrote when it happened onto the board and kind of did it in hand lettering and did the fly and the date and I did a map of Cosmo and so I was really proud of that because I've done so many paintings for other people I've never really done my own fish portrait catch and release paintings for myself so that's kind of how that came about. Yeah, I, I was wondering too. Another question. So I've I've been following your art for a while, and uh, I, I like just kind of seeing different artists' perspective on on fishing. What are what's something that you feel like everyday anglers could learn from the more artistically inclined outdoorsmen? Is there do you feel like there's a, a lesson that people who are maybe more in tune with that could could teach everyday anglers? Yeah, um, and even something I'm still trying to learn, honestly, and. Like that moment where you catch a fish and you, you slide it to you and you put it in your hand, whatever, whether it's a six inch trout or, a, you know, a 95 pound GT. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment that's chaotic where whoever's trying to get a picture wants the picture. And, and then you start that after 30 seconds, that, that, that register starts going on in your brain. Okay. We need to let this fish go. And then you release that fish and then you start thinking, you know, I never even looked at that fish. I never even like was able to appreciate its colors and its scales and all these little things that if all those people weren't around you that you probably would have. And I've learned to just stop taking more pictures and just, no, we're not going to do the picture thing with this fish. I'm going to like enjoy this fish and soak it in and leave it halfway in the water and and just appreciate everything there is to appreciate it for 20 seconds and then just watch mm-hmm. that fish swim away. So I think, I think those, those type of things are important to do. And I think they get less done less these days with, you know, the Instagramming and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I think people are just appreciating, appreciating those moments a lot more or less, less these days, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just as, at fault for it too. Like I'll realize that I've done that. I'm like, damn it. Mm -hmm. You know? So what, what do you feel like aligns you or, or kind of pulls you back and kind of snaps you out of that trance? What, what, what can help with getting rid of that? Mm -hmm. Um, I think just that actual thing of not feeling like you need to put everything on social media Mm -hmm. and realize that, you're fishing for yourself and not so much for the world to see. And like, like I'll be the first to admit I, I do it. I mean, but I think I'm starting to try to figure out to do it less. Like does, I don't think everyone needs to see, you know, the five fish you caught that day, maybe put one up or releasing mm-hmm. a fish and then, but just enjoy, make it between you and nature and the outdoors. And I don't know, just start appreciating it a little bit more and more, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Try to try to guard it. Yeah. Try to try to guard it. Something that I did. So I recently, I don't know, maybe three or four months ago, I just decided on like my, for my personal account, just to, to get off social media. And I just felt like I was just, you know, just all these Mm -hmm. great moments in my life. I'd be like, Oh, I want to make sure I get this, especially with, I have a four year old and I have a six month year old and I like taking photos and everything. And I I was kind of just wrestling with that decision. And the first week, 
that I didn't have it, I, I kept having like these little moments where I was like, oh man, I, you know, I kind of, my thought process was, I wish I could share that, you know? And then, yeah. And then I, then after that, I kind of got used to it. And then we kind of, my wife and I found new ways to kind of share some of that stuff. If it's like photography, whether it's texting friends or we have shared iCloud folders for our families who want to keep up with our girls and stuff. And I started, That's cool. uh, I started doing something where I would, I would like take these photos with my friends and I'd print them and like give them to them and be like, Hey man, here's that photo from the other day. And I actually That's found that it was like more more gratifying than that instant gratification of like, Oh, this cool thing's happening. Let me instantly put it out there. So everyone knows. And and I felt like it kind of helped maybe guard me from that. Cause I struggle with that too. And I read a book a couple of years ago called amusing ourselves to death by Neil Postman. <laughs> and he, he talks about, it was written 40 years ago and it is eerie, like prophetic in the sense of just, he could see what was coming with society. And, um, he had a, a line in there to like, to talk about the spell is to break the spell, you know, like the spell that entertainment and at the time that was just like TV, you know, it wasn't even social yeah. media and phones. And I think that I, I've just realized too, that like, you know, making some of those decisions have been the right decisions for me. And then to like talk about it with people, whether it's my wife, who's like, Hey, you're on your phone too much, you know, and just having conversations is to kind of break the spell of kind of what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And you know, and we've also, uh, just gotten away from like you're saying the physical photo like you used to go to the drugstore and get all your photos printed and it was awesome that tactile feel of a photo in your hand you know i think it's going to come back and that's something i got to start doing is like making a yearly photo book of all these photos that are in my phone because eventually they're just going to get erased and mm-hmm. get zapped into nothing so yeah especially when when the, when the child comes, you got to start figuring out how that all works as well. Oh man. Yeah. And, and I definitely want to talk about upcoming fatherhood and there's, if you think you you take a lot of photos now, it's unbelievable with kids. You're just like, uh, all day long, my wife is sending me photos and I heard a comedian, I heard a comedian like, what are we going to do with all these photos? I can't remember what it was. He's like, we just need different hard drives. He's like, and this is my Disney 2004 hard drive, you know, like all these thousands of photos on them. But yeah, totally. trying to slow down and, uh, you know, I've been on, on the boat some, my dad's a captain and I've worked some trips with him and we've got on tarpon and I've got to do some photography of that. And, you know, I'm trying to also just take the better quality photos and not just blast it to where I have 500 of the same photo, but trying to like get creative and look at yeah. different angles. And w- what are some ways that you try to keep yourself on your toes so, so that you're not kind of falling into ruts as an artist? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me, uh, if I ever feel like I'm sitting here, like, what should I do? Like, I just get my, my journal, my sketchbook out and find something through an old photo or an idea and, and draw it. Or, like, find a, find someone that inspires me, whether it's an angler or an artist, and just do their portrait. And usually ideas come to my mind while I'm doing those because it just kind of... Mm-hmm it's kind of senseless, mindless stuff and I'm not having to think too hard about it. And so once your brain kind of goes to that reset button, ideas kind of start popping out. And I also, if I'm kind of feeling kind of like mental zero, I'll go to like a coffee place and I don't even really drink coffee, but I'll get like a, a latte frou-frou something or other mm-hmm. and sit there and <laughs> I mean, you know, and I get a lot of ideas from just watching people 
Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things too, like when your when your brain is just sitting there being, you know, zeroed out and senseless, it kind of resets and some ideas start popping in my head. Like when I did all those kind of pop culture things eight, ten years ago, um, that's kind of how all those happened. I would sit at a coffee place, whether it's in Atlanta or here, and I would just something would come to mind and I would just kind of see that character holding a fish and then it would happen. So mm-hmm. yeah, just kind of senseless, mindless stuff. Well, if it's uh good with you, I'd love to transition into some not so rapid fire questions. That is uh yeah, that's my framework for, I don't have any way to try to even make these things cohesive, but just a, a long list of questions I wanted to ask. And you're, you're an interesting, I feel like, figure in the in the fishing world because you're not a guide. You're, you're an artist, but you, you run with a lot of guides, and you get to spend a lot of, a lot of time with them. What to you is, is, in your opinion, the most challenging fish to, to chase from an angling standpoint? Yeah, you know, I think, I think it would still have to be permit. Uh, now, keep, I, I will admit I've never done the permit deal in, in the Keys. Mm-hmm. I've only done it in in Mexico primarily and in Honduras and then in the Seychelles. So, you know, it's funny that I've never even permit fished in my own backyard down in the Keys, but it it would have to be those fish. And, you know, I, I've heard there are some guides in the Keys that, like, that's their specialty and that's what they do the best. I, I can't wait to go down there and fish with some of those guys and do that. But, you know, I, permit fishing is one of my favorite things to do and it's – it's uh, understandably frustrating, and you can do all the right things. You can do ten of the right things that you were supposed to do that day, and still not get anything. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what I love about it, honestly. Like, uh, I think, and then you know, fishing like guided fishing for tarpon around here in Charleston. Uh, I fished with a buddy named Newman Weaver up in Georgetown, mm-hmm. and I think that can be pretty frustrating here too because. You can have all the knowledge of the keys guides and the panhandle guides for tarpon, but when you get when you throw in some dirty water up here and then six foot, you know, tides and all these different things, it kind of becomes a whole other game. Mm-hmm. And but it's fun to like bring those elements of what you know in clear water and put them into dirty water and then see if it can still all kind of work out. Yeah. As somebody who's well traveled and been able to fish in a lot of different contexts, what are some tips that you would give to people who are wanting to travel more and fish? Any anything that you'd like to go back and tell yourself on some of these early trips? Um, you, you don't expect. I mean, the biggest thing that I've been able to, I've been fortunate to uh, kind of learn and actually actually use when I do travel is just don't expect the world to just you know, open up and just have all these fish handed to you. At the end of the day, it's a location and it's someone else's backyard, just like your backyard. When you go fishing, it's not always perfect and it's not always easy. It's not going to be easy. And you just got to be realistic. Even though you paid this, this certain sum amount to go to this location, it's still fishing and it's hard and you're going to have the weather and just don't have all these huge expectations of, you know, Disney world fishing when, you know, it's just not. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's the hardest thing I think to get past when you've gone, when you've spent this certain amount of money to get to Cuba and you have four days of crappy weather and, mm-hmm. or you can have seven days of perfect weather and 
the fish just aren't eating. You know, they're tarpon at the same time. They're only a hundred miles away from the keys and the keys they don't eat sometimes. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think just, to, you know, just figuring out your expectations. Mm-hmm. What are some, some tips that you would give somebody who's an inspiring artist or a, a business owner who is kind of looking up to, to flood tide and, and would like to try to kind of forge a similar path? Yeah. Um, as far as the the first party question, like aspiring artists, I think just knowing that it's going to take time. It's just like it's just when I when I decided that I was going to take this seriously back in I think it was 2005. I said to myself, "All right, I'm going to give this thing ten years. Like I'm not going to stop until ten years is over, and I'm not going to mm-hmm. just assume that I'm making it in five years." Like give it 10 years and that'll give you a really good idea and spectrum of how it was and can it keep, you know, sustaining that? Can you make a living doing this? Can you raise a family doing this? And there's definitely ups and downs. Like you got the 2008 economy you've got currently right now. So I think just give it time, give yourself a realistic goal and a realistic amount of time to make that goal happen. And the best thing I ever did was work in a fly shop. I mean, I'm, a, I'm working in the fly fishing industry as an artist. I met so many people that helped promote me and help carry the good word for me, working at the West Bank Anglers in Dallas, Wyoming, and then Atlanta, the Fishhawk. And then I worked for Scotty's shop here in Charleston for a couple of years. So I, I worked in fly shops for 20 years. Hmm. And without that, I don't think I'd be where I was today. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's just an a never ending flow of people that will end up being on your list of people that'll do something for you in the future if you need it or just help you in some way. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that, that old saying, it took 20 years to be an overnight success. A lot of of people don't always see, I guess the hard work. And I think that's true Mm -hmm. with guiding too, you know, is that people, they want to buy a skiff and buy nice gear and post on social media and then just overnight have full books. But yeah. Do, do you do you feel like that's a something that you've always been patient and playing the long game, or do, or was there something in your life that helped lead you to to realizing that it's just important to take your time and pay your dues? Yeah, you know, I don't. Along the way, I didn't. Re- I thought I just saw myself in the moment, and I didn't really see myself as all right. You got to meet this amount of people. You got to you know. It's just one of those things that I knew that I was doing what I love doing. And I loved working in the shop, and I loved doing my artwork. And I was just content, I guess, is the best way to answer that question. And I, I was making enough money to get by, like a lot of people in this industry, you know. So who was mm-hmm. I going to complain to? Um, I, w- I was happy, and I was doing just fine. I was comfortable, and I was fishing plenty. And, yeah, I guess I was just content, honestly, and just had faith that it was going to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still do that. I mean, I think in this kind of business where no one's handing you a paycheck, you still kind of have to have that mindset. And I love coming into work. I don't have to set an alarm. I usually wake up at 6, 6.15, hang out with the dogs and my wife, and I can't wait to come in my studio. And just I walk in, I smell that smell of paint and paper, and I just I can't wait to, to get going on whatever I'm going to work on that day. Hmm. So I'm super lucky. One of the things too, I was wondering is, you know, I'm about to be 
doing a, a handful of interviews with guides along Charleston that you that you helped set up. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about Charleston is an interesting city for me because, like you said, it's 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 a southern it's got southern feel, but it's known for having great food and you know the the flood tide fishery is something that's a huge draw to me. Talk to me about a perfect trip to Charleston. What what does that look like? Yeah, I think in what I what I sell people on is the fact that it's the perfect place to bring your wife. You know, maybe you got a couple buddies, two guys, two wives, and the beauty of it is we're not really a fishery where you can where you can fish all day if you want. You can fish all day anywhere in the world, but the perfect amount of time here is the two hours before high tide and the two hours after or the two hours before and after low tide so you kind of have that four to five hour window of fishing so if you leave at eight in the morning you're going to be back by one and it doesn't blow the whole day out of hanging out you know if you bring your wife to a place like this because ladies love charleston it's got great shopping restaurant and bars so it's honestly the ideal place to do a trip like that. Now, if you if it's your buddy, just you and your buddy, whatever, that's fine. It works the same way. And even if you do want to fish high and low tide, like if it's a flood tide season, let's say there's a 9.30 high tide, you get on the water at 8, fish till 11, go eat lunch, hang out, and then you'd meet up back at 3 or 4 to go fish the low tide. So there's a lot of activity involved because we have 6-foot tides here. Mm-hmm. So you have such a huge tide swing, and during that kind of dead time, there's just no point in being on the, being on the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I love about it, honestly, is that I can go fishing and not worry about pissing my wife off because I'm not going to be gone all day. Mm-hmm. Well, where are we? So, so if we're doing lunch, you know, where are we eating in Charleston? Uh, you know, we we typically go to Leon's. Um, it's a cool little. It's they kind of call it a poultry and. Um, shrimp shack it's a really cool place uh we also go to lewis barbecue which is kind of like a texas style barbecue place here and that's really good and also home team barbecue which is definitely one of our top three places we send people to or go to ourselves um they kind of take barbecue and kind of throw it um into kind of more of a a flair they do mm-hmm. a lot of really creative things with it um and then you got all kinds of places down on King Street uh, and all kinds of cool bars. And now everything's kind of revised right now, but for the most part, most most places are open. Uh, but, yeah, there's so many choices here. Uh, you know, one of the most famous places here is probably Husk and a restaurant called Fig. Those are two of the ones that kind of started the whole revolution of restaurants here in town. Mm-hmm. And then one of our – one of our my wife and I's favorites called Rue de Jean. It's kind of like a French – French place, but hmm. man, there's so many good places here. Yeah, that sounds great. That's that's something that I feel like is a huge added bonus versus you know when you were down here in my neck of the woods in Carabel, um, yeah. it's a, <laughs> a little less foodie um, to say the least. What's it? Fathoms, I think, is where we went a couple times when we were down there. <laughs> yeah, Fathoms, Fathoms Bar. Did you play any music at Fathoms? I did not, but we saw people playing music. There were a couple where I was like, man, I probably should get up there and kind of take over here. But uh, no, yeah. we, we had a good time. Man. I love coming down there and raising a little hell and going into Fathoms. Yeah, and there's definitely some good places. Tropical Traders is really good. Apalachicola has a lot of a lot of good mm-hmm. eating places. Um, 
But yep. I definitely feel like Charleston, you know, I'm, it's safe to say they have a little bit of an upper hand on the food culture thing for sure. Yes, it's really easy to sell people on coming here. It's really not that hard. Even my friends back in Texas or Colorado, Wyoming, like just you lay out all the different things you can do and hang out and spend time doing it. And it's just like, all right, I got my flights booked. You know, like it's pretty simple to, to gather friends here for sure. So an, another thing that I was wondering kind of with you is, you, you're an artist on a couple different fronts. I know you like to play music, and I've heard that you're pretty good at making mixed drinks. Is that true? <laughs> I, I attempt. I, I keep on the simple side of things. Things like, uh, you know, ranch waters and manmosas, where it takes about two ingredients. <laughs> the uh, the Paul Paul Puckett manmosa recipe. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. That's simply orange juice and, and a light beer, and you're done. What What about cooking? Are you are you into cooking? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my wife's a really good cook, and it's kind of made... I, I kind of tend to do more of the grilling. Like, if she's making whatever, whatever, I'll be the grill guy. But uh, I'm you know, not so much, like, in the kitchen a great cook. I enjoy doing it. I, I follow a recipe, then I'll kind of go on my own path and kind of add in a few things here and there. I enjoy it for sure, but I wouldn't say I'm that good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm better at sitting there on the grill, flipping burgers and sipping on a beer and just kind of doing that whole thing yeah uh one of the sponsors of the show is is traeger and uh, okay you know i try to get some good grill recipes here and there um i'd love to do you have any recipes that you want to share yeah a little shout out to to remick and traeger for sure uh i love those things those things have changed my life for sure i i think the main thing um, I like to do is something I've kind of come up with, and it's funny, Garden and Gun just did a, an article about okra, and I was like, man, they should have gotten in touch with me because I got the best okra recipe. I call it smokra, and uh, <laughs> get a get a whole bundle of okra in an in a iron skillet, and I put my, uh, my barbecue rub on it that I call Puckett's Belly Rub. It's still... <laughs> <laughs> it's still being bottled and canned right now, so the secret's not quite out yet. Um, and I put a bunch of belly rub on that that okra with some olive oil, and then I smoke it for about 15 minutes on the 180 setting, um, or the smoke setting on a Traeger. And then I do it for about at about 350 for another 15 minutes, 15 mm-hmm. to 20 minutes. And then you got a nice pile of appetizer smokra. Mm-hmm. Uh, Super yeah. easy to do, yeah. You put anything on on them after? I like to put hot sauce on mine. I don't know if if that's. Something. I mean, that would be awesome. Uh, we we kind of do a modified uh, that Alabama white sauce. Mm. Just kind of modify that with some mayo and some vinegar, and uh, we put in some mustard mustard seeds as well. So, mm. but yeah, that's that's what I like to do. Otherwise, you know, we do uh, the typical smoked pork butts and uh do a lot of chickens like full chickens in there in that traeger Mm. yeah that's that's good i i um you know i was i was curious too what's the so i know that you did the art on frigate rum uh what's the background there as far as how that logo came to be in, in your involvement in that process yeah um i would say it was probably two couple years ago two and a half years ago graham hagemeyer uh, here in Charleston, 
he uh, was a fishing guide in I don't think he's really guiding much anymore, but he was he was guiding for five, six, seven years. He's got a lot of background here in Charleston. I think his family used to come here a lot growing up, but he's been here a long time. And he, uh, you know, has become friends through the Black Fly Lodge, which is Vaughn's place. He got to know Clint down there and then got to know Flip pretty well. And he and Clint were just kind of rapping about how cool it would be to start a rum company. And they found this bottle that kind of looked like this old pirate bottle. And that's kind of what inspired them to have that idea. Hmm. And just, just knowing Graham and being here, he just asked me if I would, you know, draw a frigate. And I kind of did it in this kind of loose kind of pen way. And it just ended up being the logo. (laughs) And it's really not much more complicated than that. Honestly, I'm just happy to be, a part of it because I do love the rum and it's really good stuff. And to me, a lot of times rum can be a little too sweet and it just, I really dig the product. And so it's really cool to be involved with a product that I really like. And, uh, and it seems like they're doing pretty well with it so far. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I haven't done much with rum and I texted, uh, Drew Chacone and he sent me over, uh, like a painkiller recipe that was, uh, awesome he's very foodie guy you know he's got all his notes and everything and uh it came out great man i'm I'm a big fan of it and uh, i love the artwork on it too i think it's i think it looks really good and it stands out on on the shelf for sure um yeah definitely let's talk a little bit about fatherhood so you know i can't i can't go through the podcast and and not talk about your newest adventure what what are you looking forward to the most you know i think i don't really know honestly it's such a unknown for me i mean i know that it's gonna be a very uh i don't know daunting task is the word for it uh it's i'm looking forward to it though and i know it's gonna be a lot of energy um it's gonna take a lot of energy to get get it going and get get it to the point where we can manage it without feeling you know just totally exhausted all the time uh yeah i'm scared nervous and super excited uh (laughs) You know, I've heard nothing but great things from everyone that's had a kid, and it's definitely one of those things that I'm ready for in the way that I've had a very selfish life my whole life, and I'm ready to, uh, you know, deal with any of the challenges that it brings. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure it'll cut down on my fishing time a little bit, of course, but (laughs) um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm I'm pumped, and um, I'm ready for it for sure. Yeah, it was one of those things for me that, and, and you and I were talking on the phone the other day just about fatherhood for a minute, but what I, I didn't feel ready for it personally. And somebody had told me, you never feel ready to get married and you never feel ready to have kids. And I had yeah. a lot of like, I had a lot of fears and I don't know, just, I was worried about similar things. Like, you know, I just, I know how selfish I can be. And, you know, I just, I feel like growing up, I always looked at my dad and you know, just couldn't see myself the way that I saw my dad growing up in, in, in my eyes. And, um, you know, the moment I, I saw my, my oldest daughter, like all of that just, just melted away for me. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's definitely got its challenges. I got one at seven months and I got one at four, uh, four wow. years old. And, uh, it's definitely got a lot of challenges, man, but it is, you know, children are their own, you know, it sounds corny and cheesy, but they're, they're a great piece of art. You know, they're, it's, it's sure. just, I can stare at my kids and, and just be amazed, you know, at the, at how beautiful they are and, and everything. Um, so we're excited just to 
follow along and see you in that process. And I'm sure in some way it will impact your art and your, your, oh, yeah. you know, for the better, um, and probably bring a different depth or maturity into it. Um, speaking of, of, of your art, you had mentioned that you're, you're working on a project with your journal. I think a lot of people who follow, you know, that you, you do sketches that kind of commemorate stories. Could you tell us just a little bit about that project? Yeah, I, I started, it's one of those things that I started the first day I ever caught a tarpon down in um, in the Keys. I think it was like 2013 on my birthday, and uh, and I had always been so mad at myself for not just writing fishing journals. and And so many people are in the same boat. Like, well, I should start it. I just haven't started it yet. And you just got to do it. You have to do it because it's never too late to start. And you can't be mad about the fact you haven't been doing it the last three years in order to start. So. I finally did it, and just since then, I kind of have definitely come a long way in how I do it, and there's an artist that I used to like a lot that came in to the fly shop in Dallas named Jack Unruh, and his art is incredible, and he published a book about three or four years ago, or he has passed on, but his his wife published like all his journals, and so I kind of, to some degree, followed that model. I started drawing more in them. So what I would do is, it, like, let's just say I'm down in the Keys on a fishing trip. The day before the trip, I'll draw something on a page. And and then the next day after that fishing trip has happened, I'll write about that day all around that drawing. And then I'll jump to the next page and do the next drawing. So I always have a drawing to kind of write around, and it just kind of adds a different visual appeal to it, I think. Mm-hmm. And... um and then I just decided a couple months ago that I'd like to maybe publish these journals every five years to kind of create a, a timeline and just kind of a time capsule of maybe every 10 years. I don't know yet what I'm going to do, but mm-hmm. I think it would make a really cool uh, book and just something visually stimulating. If, if you didn't even know who I was or anything about me, if you picked it up, I think it would be kind of interesting to read and look at no matter if you liked fishing or not so because you know i kind of draw a bunch of different stuff food flowers bees i mean just it's kind of a non you know ending different amount of stuff i'd mess around with so Mm -hmm. we'll see that's the that's the plan to figure out i got a couple companies i'm talking to about maybe helping me with it or i'm going to self-publish it either way i'm going to do it for sure Mm-hmm. Is there a, a certain story or journal entry that you feel like if, if you could only share one, what would that be? You know, I don't really have an answer for that because I've done so many of them. And when I, it's funny because with the fact that I do write them down, like I kind of wash them out of my memory. So hmm. like if that makes sense, like if I hadn't ever written them down, I'd probably still trying to keep a hold on them into my memory you know what i mean if that makes Mm -hmm. sense um probably probably i mean just to answer that question it would have to probably be the the big gt i caught in the seychelles Mm. because i mean i came back with such a vivid you know such an amazing story too like the guide had to jump out of the boat and swim all over this flat to keep diving down and uncoiling the line from coral heads and Mm. on the third one he he dove down like 12, 10, 12 feet and, you know, had his eyes closed, was following the line down to it and just opened his eyes. And that GT was just sitting there staring at him in the eye, in the face. Wow. And he, he, he grabbed the fish and the, 
the line came unbuttoned at the coral head and he just swam up with the fish and he was like a hundred feet away from the boat and just r- tried to raise it above his head. And we were just, it was just one of those epic stories, man. Yeah. Like, so that, that journal entry would definitely be the one. Yeah. That, that sounds, that sounds incredible. Well, my, my last question for you, and I used to ask this question a lot more and I, I moved away and I want to get back to it is, you know, for you, when you think about what's next and what's, what's the next 20, 30 years, to you, what does success look like? Yeah, I mean, it's it. I don't know because uh, right now I feel successful. I mean, and the only reason I can tell you that is because I, I have a place to work that I can pay for, and I love coming in here. So to me, that's successful. Uh, I don't know that I have a certain. I think like maybe one day when I'm 85 and I'm still painting, and I think that to me is going to be successful. The fact that I'm still doing what I love and I don't really have to retire. I mean, I don't think artists ever retire. Like a buddy of mine, Eldridge Hardy, he's 81 now, and he just decides to paint or not paint whenever he feels like it, and he still sells those pieces if he wants to sell them. And I think if I'm sitting in his shoes when I'm that age, I think that's successful. Hmm. No, that's good, man. Well, thank you so much for giving us some time today, and I look forward to hopefully fishing a a Charleston flood tide sometime soon when all this craziness ends, but I'm so grateful for the time man. thank you. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, it's an honor to be on the show and I appreciate you asking me to do so. I enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening to the captain's collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the captain's collective. To succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.